Hello. Um, this paper comes from my current research of the V&A and some research I've been doing for some time of its modernisation in the 20th century. And this was from um, my new research of exploring its transatlantic developments in connection with developments in uh, museums in the United States in the 20th century. Um, it explores the V&A as a site of national reconstruction after the First and Second World Wars where ideas of mu museum modernisation are explored between two models. They sound very similar, but they're subtly um, very different, and I shall call these the Museum of Modern Art and Design and the Modern Art and Design Museum. The first addressing the collections and the role of the museum, and the latter more its aesthetic imagery. And the first image I'll show is of um, the V&A's new facade, grand facade building. These are illustrations by its architect, Aston Webb. And this building reopened to the well, it opened for the first time to the public in 1909. Um, and just 10 years earlier, the V&A was rebranded or re retitled uh, with a, a, a royal signature. <laughs> so it's, it makes a fitting backdrop really to um, unpack this very loaded term modernizing the V&A which I've chosen which indicates normally a progressive transition from a traditional to a modern state. I would like to propose however an alternative idea that the V&A was reconstructed in the first half of the 20th century as a museum that actually stood in splendid isolation to use that nice British foreign policy term of, of the turn of the century from international um, developments in modern industrial culture and that subsequently struggled to assimilate to this after the First and Second World War. Now I know that this isn't new information, um, but perhaps my interpretation is. <laughs> um, the V&A's curator Christopher Wilk explains this uh, uh, new historical focus, which he says gathered force in the years after the, after the First World War, and I quote, both reflected a new form of romantic nationalism and mitigated against attention being paid to contemporary design. Historian Anthony Burton stresses the decline of the English landed gentry as the economic background to this new historical focus and a new abundance of the material wealth of the English country house. But I would like to suggest this new historical focus was something more assertive, aggressive even. After the First World War, um, the revolutions, well, the First World War and the revolutions in Russia and China, and royal abdications and depositions <coughs> in Europe drastically changed the world, casting doubt on the traditions and institutions of the past. And what happens in the V&A was that, after, well, just before the First World War, its contemporary collections were actually removed from the V&A. And this gathered force in the years after the First World War, as Christopher Wilk points out. <coughs> so it seems that by physically removing and then subsequently excluding this contemporary culture of the here and now, this more uncertain material culture, the V&A seemed to be reasserting those, traditional, um, those traditions of the past and reconstructing, to use um, Maurice Halvac's term, a collective memory on which to base its vision of the present and the future. The V&A's modern collections, and I, I use the term modern collections the way that the V&A used that term at the time, which was to refer uh, um, to all most collections made after 1825 as modern and it was still referring to 
collections made after 20, 1825 as modern, even in 1951. <laughs> so it's a very unique definition. Um, these were relocated to its branch museum in Bethnal Green, which um, is behind me here, an image of which is behind me here, which was established in 1872. Um, interestingly, from the former South Kensington Museum's building, it, and we know it stays the Museum of Childhood, it's, um, the early, it's an early iron frame building with an explicitly industrial aesthetic, an open plan interior we may recognise today as far more modern than the newer Aston Webb building. So in a sense, the Bethnal Green Mu Museum seemed to inherit the original South Kensington Museum's contemporaneity, both its building and its contemporary or modern collections. Indeed, it might not be too far a stretch, although it may be, to consider the Bethnal Green Museum as the world's first museum devoted to modern arts and design. But instead, we know this title goes to the Museum of Modern Arts in New York. Founded in 1929, this is an interior view of a display of design. Just three years after its opening in 1932, MoMA, a much lesser known, much smaller museum, much internationally not very well known museum at that time at all, um, not the V&A itself, founded the world's first Department of Architecture and Design. And it also made popular, or sort of popular, or inaugurated this white cube gallery aesthetic we know today as a white cube gallery aesthetic, with its pale, unadorned walls and spaciously displayed artworks, very lit, well lit from above, um, that we know as the white cube. And historian Tim Barringer, he observes, and I quote, MoMA positioned its hallmark display techniques in explicit opposition to the eclecticism and visual overkill of cluttered Victorian display techniques. This induced a mood of anti-Victorian self-hatred among British institutions such as the V&A. And here we have, um, in 1920, um, an, a view of the V&A, it's its Octagon Court. Um, and this is an Edwardian, this is built in the Edwardian period, but it's but largely it's Victorian imagery and fabric combined with the removal of its contemporary collections radically altered its primary role in design education and its relationship with industry designers and students who had been its core audience. Its material arrangement, which was a tradition from the 19th century, was calculated to, inform, to, to impart an education to these audiences, and was also by this time interestingly viewed as old-fashioned, where objects of, for example, the Renaissance were dispersed amongst displays of woodwork, metalwork, textiles, and so on. Just a few years later, we have another view of the same um, court, and um, we have another director, Eric McLagan, who was, although he was against collecting contemporary objects in the V&A, he was in favour, however, of arranging collections of what he called, um, in a modern way, in a modern style, by period and culture. In 1937, well, he installed this in 1936, and we can already see it's... We would recognise this as perhaps more familiar than the previous. It's, it's certainly heading in a more um, modern period direction. 
1937, he has an opportunity to go further after, after an inquiry by the Council of Art and Industry into the relationship between museums and modern industrial art was launched by uh, yeah, Council of Art and Industry. And this prompted McLuggan um, not to include modern objects, he sidestepped that is issue, um, but to plan instead a new arrangement by period and culture, um, indicating museum modernisation as something in and of itself. Now we move across the Atlantic to the Museum of Modern Art and a new director, because McLuggan didn't get to carry out the new arrangement, um, which was interrupted by the Second World War and by the end of the, immediately after the Second World War, we have a new director, Lee Ashton, and here he is, he's seated at the head of the table in the red tie um, in the penthouse suite of MoMA in 1948. And Ashton was seen as a moderniser. He appreciated modern art. He was an Orientalist, but he had a real appreciation for modern art and he had an international outlook and contacts to match. Um, he had worked with McLuggan on the, on the pre-war rearrangement, so he was uh, very well embedded in the process. Um, and here he, wa he was in the penthouse suite of MoMA. He had been invited by Life magazine as one of 15 distinguished connoisseurs and critics to discuss what the magazine's editors referred to as the strange art of today or modern art. And this was attended by such people as the author Aldous Huxley and the cr critic Clement Greenberg and the director of the Met and, and really an association of people at the forefront of developments in art and art museums. It was also perhaps an attempt to arbitrate on behalf of public taste and understanding as the art world's attention shifted from war-torn Europe and the dominant cultural high ground, particularly France had occupied for decades, uh, Paris rather, had occupied for decades, to the United States and New York. Now this shift had earlier began, um, again in MoMA, with its seminal um, 40 years of Picasso exhibition, which really, as it's... Um, its founding director, Alfred Barr, um, uh, writes, it really catapulted MoMA to the centre of the art world and brought international fame to MoMA because it absolutely smashed um, audience figures. It was a huge critical um, success. And Picasso, of course, hugely emblematic, as we've heard in a few presentations of um, anti-war feeling, during the war, but after the war as well, in he was commissioned by UNESCO, for example. Interestingly, Ashton also contributed to UNESCO's museum programme, where he worked with Grace Morley, who was the director of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. So he was very well connected in this scene. Um, after the war, here he is, Ashton's um, overseeing repair work um, before the rearrangement, and this was an opportunity for him to test his new ideas, because although the scheme was McLuggan's, he had aesthetic ideas of his own. One of the first things he did was to insert in the new exhibition space in the grand entrance of the V&A in 1945, yeah, this new exhibition space, <laughs> Um, which shows simple um, modern lines, pale plain backgrounds and overhead lighting. He also used a new material, perspex, to display as display stands for objects. 
and spaciously displayed the objects. So we recognise this as if, if not a, an actual white cube gallery style, it's certainly heading in that direction. The other thing he did was to agree to host two major exhibitions of modern art and design. Now this was nothing new to the V&A because external organisations had been exhibiting modern artwork in the V&A, although the V&A itself didn't um, largely was purged of um, modern design. Um, but these were really um, very high profile exhibitions, so this was something quite radical. And the first of these was a Picasso by the British Council of modern wartime paintings by Picasso and Matisse. And it really divided opinion in Britain because the arts press viewed it very much as um, we have this headline, Storm over Picasso, we have another scandal at the V&A. But the public, and I don't know if Ashton was hoping that by now it seemed that Picasso was turning exhibitions into gold and Matisse as well, and I think he was hoping that it would repeat the same trick for the V&A because he seemed quite keen on hosting the exhibition. Um, and indeed it did repeat this trick um, with the British public who came to see it in record numbers. Um, the other exhibition was the Council of Industrial Design's um, Britain Can Make It exhibition of 1946, which showed those lovely narrative designs by those British designers um, Harriet was just talking about um, by James Gardner and Misha Black. Um, originally given the working title Swords into Ploughshares, it aimed to show how British technology and design used to win the war could also win, be converted to win the peace and place British products at the forefront of international markets. Interestingly, um, now the exhibition received, uh, the number of visitors the exhibition received in just three months was more than the V&A as a whole had received before the war in a whole year. So we're talking just under a million and a half visitors um, and the independent social survey organisation, Mass Observation, was commissioned to undertake a large visitor survey. It was several thousand visitors and test the public's attitude to modern design, particularly the council's target skilled working class audiences and especially those skilled working class audiences from the East End of London. Um, and indeed, mass observation found that this target audience made up 72% of visitors at a time when skilled working class people made up 40% of the British population. So it's a great success in terms of audience development and many indeed came from London's East End. Um, it also found that visitors were on the whole receptive to modern design, although many said, well, we've seen this before and during the war, it's not that new, it's not that modern, but we like it, we, when can we buy it? <laughs> you know, because they couldn't buy it at the exhibition, only overseas buyers could buy it. Um, but importantly, mass observation found that the most praise was heaped on the display design itself. So they really liked the way that the V&A had been redesigned and the design and the display designs. Um, now, um, crucially, what these two exhibitions, the Picasso and Matisse and the Britain Can Make It exhibition show is that although not organised by the V&A, it did demonstrate a new mass audience for modern art and design in the museum, as well as modern approaches to modern display design itself. 
the question was whether the V&A could sustain this interest and could respond. And indeed, in February 1949, a meeting was recorded with Lee Ashton and Gordon Russell, who was the director of the Council of Industrial Design, and Gerald Barry of the Festival of, Festival of Britain. And they met here, this is an earlier image from the 1950s, but this is the V&A's North Court. And they discussed the pl council's plan, which it was very much in partnership with the V&A. Ashton had actually located this gallery for the scheme. Um, and I quote, it was for some gallery at which there could be a contemporary exhibition of industrial design, an international display, which since it must always be up to date, is ever changing. And the gallery, they were going to insert another floor um, in, in, inside, but there's no, there's no actual plans or images, there were no, no projected illustrations of how the new gallery would have looked. Um, it was planned to be a new permanent gallery and part of the Festival of Britain of 1951 to mark the centenary of the Great Exhibition, which of course had led to the V&A. So, in a sense, this new gallery seemed poised to reassert the museum within a narrative of Britain's industrial past and its future in a wider picture of national reconstruction after the Second World War. But with so many stakeholders, the, the V&A, the Council of Industrial Design, the Festival of Britain, and their respective political departments as well, their government departments, the one thing they didn't agree on right from the beginning was who should fund the new gallery, <laughs> and Ashton... They all got carried away and Ashton lost interest. He had to focus on the new arrangement. So he withdrew his support, not surprisingly. Um, this is an article about the new arrangement, which opened to schedule um, to the public in 1951. <coughs> without the new gallery and without any modern design, but nevertheless, it was a great public and critical success. Burlington magazine, hailed it a triumph of museum modernisation. And in the guidebook of 1952, Ashton gives us a glimpse into his thinking. This is, this is the only um, record I can actually ascertain as to his actual thinking this process through, um, where he describes his pr the primary galleries as, and I quote, specially set out in the connected series and showing new design techniques not just the rearrangement of objects in cases, but the completely new design and layout of the cases, the lighting and the objects to form a unified display, he calls it. Tim Barringer, of course, he's been highly critical before and he was highly critical of this effect, um, but he's possibly seeing it through <laughs> more contemporary eyes. Um, he, he says, um, he, he describes it as obscuring the magnificent decorations of the South Court, including frescoes by Frederick Layton, filling in Francis Folk's elegant arcades with a shoddy, asbestos-ridden white cube. He really didn't like it <laughs> at all. Um, but... Um, so, in a sense, in a strange reversal, in a, in a strange process of reversal, modernism, almost in, through Tim Barringer's eyes, becomes a decoration to decorate over the integral Victorian character of this building, which is um, a strange thought. So, I'll just leave you with two visions of museum modernisation. The one on your left was realised. That's an image of the English primary galleries, and it's um, with collections that go up to 1820. 
And we have an unrealised vision of Britain can make it because that's the only image really, or images of Britain can make it, are the only insight we have into how the council intended to display modern design in the V&A. And of course the new, the V&A's new rearrangement, this, this focus on its aesthetics and this white cube aesthetic, lacked that import, all important unity with actual modern objects, which was therefore not like MoMA at all in a very important way. It was in fact a subversion of MoMA's approach. The council's plan for the new gallery was united. It did show it did sh it, it did show modern design. So it, it and it had been much closer to reinventing the museum's heritage in the Great Exhibition and the South Kensington Museum. Their vision for improving modern industrial culture and reinterpreting this for 20th century audiences. Britain can make it attracted a vast new audience of skilled working class visitors to the V&A, but the museum failed to, su to sustain their interest perhaps indicating an ongoing lack of relevance of its existing historical collections. The new arrangement instead spoke to a new international modern art museum visitor. Its largely utilitarian design historical collections redefined by a new thematic arrangement and white cube gallery aesthetic as art, objet d'art. And, and most importantly, the museum itself not as a museum of modern art, but in appearance at least looking like a modern art museum, which could now compete internationally with the new museum, uh, the new modern and contemporary museology. Thank you. Thank you.